Hello and welcome to Designing with Climate in Mind. I'm John Koo, and in this podcast series, I'm joined by a range of sustainability and built environment experts to explore how we can best design our way out of this climate crisis. The last eight years, my role at Interface has seen me meet and collaborate with leading thinkers and doers. And in this podcast, I get to share some of these conversations with you. Now, the Interface story starts with our founder, the late, great Ray Anderson, and his realisation in the 90s that business can must be a force for good. That whatever you design, make or do, it's possible to do good for the planet while also doing well as an organisation. With our guest this week, I think there's a very interesting parallel. Richard Walker is the managing director of supermarket brand Iceland. He's a committed environmentalist and has led Iceland in trailblazing issues such as removing plastic packaging from shelves, tackling palm oil, and recently some great work on helping with free school meals. Today, we'll be taking a look at the roots of Richard's sustainability journey, what experiences put him on this path, the role businesses will play in a green recovery, and the importance of finding ways to give back. Hi there, Richard, and welcome to Designing with Climate in Mind. First up, 2020 has been a bit of a crazy year for us all, but how have you found it as we get towards the end of the year and reflect back? Hi, John. Uh, thanks for having me on. It's um, an honour to, to be chatting to you. Uh, yeah, 2020 has been a pretty strange year for everyone, of course, uh, but I'm acutely aware that we're one of the lucky ones as a food retailer in that we've been allowed to keep trading throughout. And our staff really have been nothing short of heroic. Our frontline colleagues in our stores haven't had the option of working from home and they've been turning up to work every day and helping feed the nation. So, you know, we've always called them frontline colleagues, but sometimes it's genuinely felt like we've been on the front line of some sort of emergency because, you know, we face the, the best and the worst of society from unprecedented panic buying and staff abuse uh, through to, you know, amazing acts of community kindness, retailers working together with government, you know, to shore up our supply lines. So it's been a, a busy old time, um, but I'm proud of the fact that we've created 5,000 new jobs since March and uh, we've opened 30 new shops and we managed to buy the business back as well from our one outside shareholder. And we grew market share to become the fastest growing retailer the supermarket in uh, in the uk so it's been a very very busy time I say, that's amazing and also happy birthday um to iceland that you're celebrating your 50 years and on a, on a personal note yeah i forgot about that <laughs> <laughs> you know I, I thank you for me because um you guys my my parents are shielding um and they have been since since march and you guys have been the guys that have had the slots your teams have been amazing in terms of always being very respectful of the rules, but also being a friendly, smiley face each week. And that's meant a lot to me personally. And I'm sure I'm not the only one. I'm one of many hundreds of thousands or millions that have been benefiting from the great work you guys have been doing and what are difficult times. That's, that's great to hear. And, you know, we've heard a lot of stories like that. And um, our, this, this rapid market share growth has come predominantly from new customers, a lot of elderly and vulnerable people um, shopping with us online. And, you know, I, I, think, um, I think we've really kind of 
galvanized our sense of purpose as a, as a business. We've got 30,000 of us now. And, you know, we had a very clear purpose uh, through lockdown, which was to, to be there for our customers, uh, 5 million customers a week now. And, um, you know, it, it's, it's just brilliant to hear some of the, the heartening stories like that, where, where we genuinely can make a difference to people's lives and, and help out through this really difficult time. Now, you guys have been, you know, really have been lifesavers. Um, what I was going to say was that for you, I mean, you might be in the office today, but have you found yourself working from home more? And, you know, did that end up meaning that you saw your family more this year than you would do normally? Because you're normally super busy. Yeah, um, uh, more so in the kind of initial weeks of March. Um and it was, we're very lucky in that we, you know, live in the countryside, we've got a garden and obviously the weather was amazing, wasn't it? In early spring. Um, I know for many other people, lockdown was, was nothing short of misery. Um, and I think it depends kind of what circumstances you're in, but I often hear Corona has been a great leveler, but I think the exact opposite, you know, uh, a lot of a lot of times people um, were really struggling, but for me it was great to spend more time with the family and the kids. Um, and you know you got to you got to savor those those precious moments for sure. Um, we we always have a, a little little bit of a attention if you like as a business because like I said our, our our shops don't have the option of working from home. So actually our head office is really a support center for the shops. I'm in their head office today. I've been in all week, you know, and. Um, in some ways now things are, are back to normal for us because we need to keep the stores open and keep trading. You guys have been doing some great work around supporting kind of on, on school meals and, and, and taking vouchers in. And, you know, the work that Marcus Rashford has done to shine a, a spotlight on, on the inequality and, and the challenges of many people around the UK today has been, I think it's been really, really important thing for us to take away, I feel, from 2020. The reality is, inequality has gone up and cases of COVID and deaths from COVID are highest in the poorest communities. Um, Ethnic minorities are are more likely to have suffered through COVID. I think where Iceland is quite special is that we're very much embedded in the communities that we serve. Our customers only live on average three miles from our stores. And that means that, you know, we're the local provider and we've got friends, families and neighbours sort of helping and serving each other. And that's where working with Marcus, you know, who grew up in Withenshaw, which is a, you know, a deprived part of Manchester. And we've got the main shop on the high street there. You know, Marcus knows exactly what it's like for these communities. And, and therefore, we were really happy to, to do what we can and partner with him and help his campaign, which has been amazing. One thing I was going to ask on that is, you know, for you guys, your work around purpose and sustainability really goes back to the 1970s. You've always had this kind of principle of doing it, doing it right. And I, a lot of people tend to think of sustainability and environment and purpose and social benefit as being a new thing. But for you guys, it really dates back. Yeah, I think so. I mean, so the business was started 50 years ago by my mum and dad. And dad's always kind of strived to do the right thing. And uh, he went to America in the 70s and, and uh, stayed at the Marriott Hotel. And, and back then, you know, he was still still kind of uh, making his way in the world. And there was a, um, a box of matches on the, that they left in the ashtray every night. And it said, we do it right. And he just thought that was the best strap line. So he borrowed it for Iceland. And that's where our strap line doing it right uh, came from. Really, it just means 
doing the best you can, you know, for our communities, our suppliers, our customers, and indeed for the environment. And we were the first retailer anywhere in the world in the early noughties to uh, take GM ingredients out of our own label foods. In fact, Dad came up with the phrase Frankenstein foods. And at the time, everyone kind of scoffed at him and said it was technically impossible and completely unnecessary. But it was a move that every other supermarket had followed within months. So I think we've always played this role as the, the disrupt, disruptor, the corporate activist. I always say we're not a sustainable business. We're a mass market, a high volume food retailer. But we always try and do our best and, and uh, agitate for change on issues where we really feel we can stand up and make a difference. I really like that. And I think it's um, I think it resonates with us at Interface because we're, you know, we're a flooring manufacturer. We make a thing. <laughs> Um, but we have that opportunity to disrupt to make people think differently. Now, I'm going to come back to some of the great work you've been doing on plastic and palm oil a little bit later. But just going back to that, um, the matchsticks from the Marriott Hotel and your father, Malcolm, bringing that home. Was, was the environment a, a discussion topic around the Walker family household when, when you were young? Yeah, it was actually. Um, I mean, not in any sort of starry-eyed sort of way as ever you know dad is a out and out retailer and very pragmatic so it was discussed but you know in only in a pragmatic way in terms of what what we can do to help and to solve these issues he was always into gardening and he had um, a walled garden where we grew up uh, which was organic and instead of using pesticides to get rid of the slugs he um he bought um four hedgehogs from the hedgehog rescue center that he named after each of the then supermarket CEOs. So I remember as a kid watching these these little hedgehogs kind of scuffle around the wall garden, eating all the slugs. Um, so he, he always had a connection to it. You know, as a kid, he was kind of uh, out in the countryside up to all sorts, and, and I was the same. And I've always had a real great love of the outdoors, and Dad was a very long, long-term Greenpeace member, as of I been so you know we've always had that kind of connection to environmentalism what are those those first formative memories when you look when you look back in terms of your own connection with nature or connection with the the environment i think it was just um out enjoying the countryside you know um just uh, just sort of playing around the garden and discovering everything that was on my doorstep and very lucky that I had the opportunity to do that, of course. Many people, many of our customers' kids, they don't have that opportunity. They don't have that access to nature, whereas for me, it was all around me and on my doorstep. So, uh, you know, I, it was very easy for me to become inspired by it. And I think that's been renewed, you know, becoming the, the father to two daughters. And, and it's, it's amazing to see their sense of awe that, you know, butterflies and birds and bugs and spiders. And uh, it's, been, it's been fantastic to kind of re-engage with it and see it through their eyes. I think this year has been a, a lot of families have had that chance to, to do that. I, I mean, I live in London and we, you know, a lot of work has been done around creating London as a national park city by Daniel Raven Ellison and just getting people to spend more time in the greenery that's around them locally. I mean, there's some crazy stat that kids a couple of years ago spent less time in nature than those serving time in prison <laughs> spent outside, which is, which is staggering. And I guess it's, um, 
for you in terms of as you've kind of watched your kids engage with it, has, has that kind of brought back memories to what it was like for yourself and your and your wife and you know those early childhood formative years that connect people with with the environment? Yeah, very, very much. And uh, I looked it up, the words um, biophilia, I think, which is our kind of innate connection to nature. And as our kind of relationship to nature declines, um, so does the natural world. And um, I'm, I'm sort of acutely aware of this, especially some of the communities that we serve. And, and you're right, that that statistic is absolutely shocking about kids spending less time outdoors than a maximum security inmate and also kids from the poorest communities in the uk are nine times less likely to spend time outdoors than the richest communities Um, and in fact many kids never go to green spaces so it's it's about inequality inequality of access and that might be down to social issues like you know the the parks are not safe places for kids um, because you know there might be there might be drug dealers there or, or whatever, so I think these are sort of systemic issues that are all interrelated, and that's where that kind of whole thing around social justice and climate justice is is absolutely interlinked, and it really inspired and drove our campaign called Backyard Nature that we uh, launched a couple of years ago, which was backed by Her Royal Highness Duchess of Cambridge, and that was about. Um, getting kids from the poorest communities in the UK inspired with nature. Because I'm paraphrasing now, but George Monbiot something says something like, if, if kids have no experience of nature, will they fight for it in the future? And, uh, we, you know, we, we helped kind of act lots of activations and, um, lots of different campaigns with the ultimate goal of trying to, um, inspire a million hours of nature engagement over two years with kids from the poorest communities. And, um, I, th- I think that's just, so important and you don't have to live in the countryside or have a big back garden in in fact you can live you know on the 20th story of a block of flats anyone can uh, protect their patch and and be a backyard nature guardian um you, you know you just have to do it a bit differently and i think it's also exciting i mean it's something that we look at in terms of the designs of our our products we look to connect people with nature and you wouldn't necessarily associate kind of the retail market or the supermarket market or um, flooring manufacturing um, with looking to connect people with nature but actually you can if you look at what you do that ability to to nudge people or to encourage people on the social side and environmental side is always there you just have to work out as your business what's the most appropriate way of doing that yeah and ultimately people have got to care and they're only, they'll only care if it's made relevant to them. And uh, I think that's what a lot of middle-class environmentalists miss is that, you know, you've got to tell people without telling them off and um, see, see these issues through their eyes um, because it's all too easy for people to uh, not feel um, associated to an issue and, and then shrug their shoulders and tune out. And it's about inspiring people from all walks of life by making them believe in the issues and care about the issues. And that you do that by making it relevant and relatable, um, which, is, which is what we've been trying to do with Backyard Nature. Absolutely. So, so, Richard, I wanted to talk to you a little bit about a couple of the campaigns that Iceland have, have run. I mean, a couple of years ago, I've been working in the, the realm of marine plastic 
for a while. And I remember being asked to go to a conference and I, I jokingly said to them, I said, uh, have you been in touch with any of the supermarkets? Because surely, you know, I can give my view on packaging and plastics, but we don't really use a lot. And they said at the time, they'd been asking the supermarkets, but no one has stepped forward. And then a couple of weeks later, the first supermarket to step forward and break the silence was you in Iceland. Um, and it was, and, and the statement wasn't a little, we're thinking about it. It was a bold statement. It was that you were going to find a way by 2023 to remove plastic packaging in your own, own products. And what were your, your memories of that, of that time? And, you know, did you sense there was a bit of a, who's going to move first? Yeah, it was something we've been quietly working on behind the scenes for a year because we we developed new uh, ranges that were plastic free. So we sort of quietly were tinkering in the background. But then Sir David Attenborough's Blue Planet 2 came along at the end of 2017 and it was clearly becoming the zeitgeist. Um, So, yeah, I was a bit worried actually at the time that someone might beat us to it, this this kind of long worked on announcement. But... um, they didn't, and I think that was sl- that was down to, you know, the boldness of our ambition. No one would conceive doing something um, as bold as that, and that partly comes down to the fact that we're a private business, family-owned. We can do and say what we like, and, and and we don't have to worry about short-term outside city investors. We can do the right thing, even if that means tapering in costs over the longer term. Um, so we did take this very disruptive, bold stance, which I was clearly told by a wide range of commentators and experts was impossible. Uh, a bit like removing Parmel was impossible, a bit like removing GM was impossible 20 years ago. But I don't really care because I'd much rather set an impossible goal and get all of our 30,000 staff kind of pointed exactly towards the North Star. And, uh, and, and, you know, have them headed in the right direction. What's really interesting is that despite the initial skepticism, I'm proud of the fact that over the last two years, not only have we made significant progress, but also the industry has now completely come over to our way of thinking. As you'll well know, kind of two, three years ago, it was all about recycling and, you know, proudly heralding the fact that there's a certain amount of recycled content in supermarkets, plastic packaging, etc. And of course, that's all predicated on the fact that it allows uh, big plastic to produce ever more plastic by talking about the myth of recycling. And, you know, I'm a firm believer we can never recycle our way out of the plastic pandemic. Yes, we need to recycle more, but uh, we also need to turn down the, the tap of production at source. Uh, so that's why I was absolutely adamant to take this disruptive stance and throw down the gauntlet. Um, and uh, now everyone else has similar, not not as dramatic or bold, but you know, targets around single use reduction and tonnage reduction, which is which is brilliant because it can only help. And I love the the honesty. You didn't come out and say we have all the solutions and we know how we're going to do this. You came out and said this is what we're going to do. We don't necessarily have all the answers but we're willing to listen we're listen willing to try things out and we're willing to get things wrong um we'll go from you know learn from trying and innovating to get to the solution to get to the goals you that you've set yeah i think that fear of failure um can stop so many businesses stepping up to the plate and 
you know, recognizing their responsibility and taking bold action. And uh, that's heightened by the social media world that we live in, where everyone's watching every step and you can be uh, pillaged for, you know, getting things wrong. But we, we get nine out of 10 things wrong. You know, for every 10 trials, we get uh, nine of failures. Um, but I think the, you know, the secret is is to be brave and stick your head above the parapet. Know that, you know, some people are going to shoot you down, but just never give up. Just just keep trying. And we've got 90 supplier working groups. We have regular conferences for over 200 suppliers. All of our buyers are having meetings on this. And um, at any one time, we have multiple trials across the business looking at uh, different solutions. Um, and and it's working. We announced um, at the end of last year that we removed uh, 30% or 29% of our entire plastic tonnage through the business, which is several thousand tons of plastic, which is huge progress. And um, within the next couple of months, early in 2021, we'll be, we're on, on track to announce even more um, uh, progress where I expect will be around 50% reduction. And how has it affected kind of the, the employees in terms of the communication to, to your staff? Have you had good feedback from them alongside the feedback you're getting from the industry and from customers? Yeah, definitely. Because one of the drivers for doing it was was staff feedback. Our staff saying this is outrageous. Like there, there is so much waste, so much packaging, so much plastic, and it's unnecessary. And you know we need to try and do something. So our staff cared about it anyway, and our customers did as well. Again, you know, environmentalism, very middle class. A lot of commentators were saying, well, you know, surprising, it's Iceland, wasn't it, Waitrose? And you know, there's this feeling that. Uh, environmentalism it's only for those who can afford to pay more for it but i'm a passionate believer that if we're gonna if we want to make a difference things have got to be scalable and, and therefore they've got to be relevant to everyone rich or poor um, and therefore everything we're doing eliminating plastic is cost neutral for our customers they didn't choose for everything to be coated and wrapped and bagged in plastic and and therefore they shouldn't have to pay the price for us uh, to to uh, right that wrong um, but it does mean that, you know, there are extra costs in our business that we're having to deal with. But what's really kickstarted a lot of action through the industry is all the packaging uh, plastic tax that's coming in. And actually now my financial director is the biggest supporter of us getting out of plastic. Because if you look forward two or three years time, there, there is uh, millions and millions of pounds of extra uh, taxation that's coming in for, for plastic packaging, which is which is fine. I mean, if if not from a uh, enlightened environmental uh, reasons, um, a lot of supermarkets now, for pure financial reasons, are now motivated to get out of it, and and that's fine because shift will happen quicker. With the the growth of kind of extended producer responsibility, it's it's something that any finance director should be thinking about, and they can't really bury their heads in the sand about it because it's going to be a significant risk. And it's so important that point you're making around environmental issues not being just a middle-class preserve because often sometimes they really are seen that way i think the thing that made me think about that this year was i was thinking about diversity as an issue is one that immediately cuts across any kind of income um differential or class or any way you want to split it that way um because it affects us all immediately and it should be the same for when you talk around sustainability and climate yeah I think Joe Biden actually frames it perfectly, again, to paraphrase him, but he, he said something like, when you talk about climate, I think about jobs. And it's sort of framing the relevance of, of climate policy, nature recovery uh, to everyone. 
uh, where perhaps the, the, those dots haven't been joined before. And that's that's the that's the challenge that we've got to face into. Yeah, earlier you mentioned putting your head above the the parapet, and I think one of my favourite examples that was that in the recent years was the um, the Rangtan video that you guys were with, with with Greenpeace. When I dug into it, I, I realised that you'd had a long track record of of tackling um, palm oil. Um, with a couple of interesting personal stories, I imagine as well. Um, but how are your reflections on on that campaign and the work with Greenpeace that you've done over the years? It it was um, you know it was a, it was an amazing it was an amazing campaign and a great piece of corporate activism because ultimately you know what's what's important is that it helped push um, Wilmar, the world's biggest palm oil producer the Malaysian government and the Roundtable of Sustainable Palm Oil towards new policies on zero deforestation. And that's why we did it. Very controversial. You know, there's a lot of uh, local jobs that rely on palm oil production in Indonesia and Malaysia. Um, and, and I was very mindful of that. And that's why I flew out there to uh, West Kalimantan to have a look firsthand at these vast palm oil monocultures to see exactly what it was doing um, to... Uh, the uh, destruction of primary rainforest to uh, animals that were being killed and brutalized and also to uh, indigenous um, land disputes as well, of which there's many. So it's a, a multifaceted kind of issue, but it's very high stakes. It's a, a huge uh, amount of Indonesia and Malaysia's GDP. And I found that, you know, they'll defend it at all costs. And sometimes I felt like I'd stepped into some geopolitical drama um, and I was in the middle of it. And we had obscure uh, kind of uh, groups from Africa, uh, supposedly representing farmers, but being able to afford uh, full page ads in the British press, uh, calling me a colonialist and an imperialist with with my my uh, face on 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 these on these photos, it escalated into this extraordinary drama. We're only two percent of the British grocery market, and when you look at global palm oil consumption, we were de minimis. We we accounted for less than a thousand tons a year. So it was really of no consequence, but it just goes to show the ripples that our little campaign was was having. And that's testament to the band ad that we had, um, which was a repurposed Greenpeace ad called Rangtang. And it was the plight of a Rangtang that had been driven from its home and uh, took refuge in a girl's bedroom. And the first time I watched it, it made me cry. Um, and I thought it would make the perfect uh, campaigning video uh, for, for our Christmas campaign. But Clearcast, um, who are the advertising kind of regulator, uh, they banned it because it was deemed to be too political. So it was never actually shown on commercial TV. But it went viral online and it kind of rewrote the rules around paid commercial advertising because it became the most watched Christmas ad of all time and has now been viewed over 90 million times. That's, it's such a powerful story and I think it now gets taught um, when people talk around sustainable communications. I also think there's going to be a generation of environmentalists and activists who that might have been the, the thing that, oh, that first got them interested in, in activism. Yeah, we, we um, I think it was TUI, the travel business. They said that um, people going to work in orangutan sanctuaries went up 900%. And in fact, Google searches of the phrase palm oil after our campaign went up 10,000%. So to be honest, no one was talking about palm oil and then everyone was. 
um, for better or worse. And, you know, we, there was lots of ups and downs in our journey and we certainly had uh, a lot of jeopardy and a lot of accusations thrown at us. It wasn't perfect, but the main thing is we got everyone talking about it. So, Richard, we've, we, you know, we've had a little look at the great work Iceland have done on palm oil and also on, on plastics and, and through the years. But I understand you've got a, a new, very exciting project for next year and that you're looking to find ways to pass some of this information on to other business leaders and other change makers. Yeah, I, um, I'm writing a book. Managing to find the time to do it, but been, my my wife isn't too impressed because I've been getting up at five in the morning before work and working on it at weekends and stuff. I mean, it's it's been quite a, a long term project. It's been working on and off for the last year or so on it. But um, yeah, it's called the Green Grocer. Uh, the strapline is One Man's Manifesto for Corporate Activism, and it's been published in April 2021 by DK. So, um, yeah, I'm, I'm super excited and, uh, it's been a, a brilliant process actually to kind of try and distill down all of my random thoughts and ideas and experiences, uh, into a, a sort of manifesto, if you like, and, and, uh, try and make it sound coherent. So, um, yeah, hopefully, hopefully it'll do well. Was there one, one moment that kind of lit that fire for you to write it? Or was it a series of things that were happening in conversations? I think so. Just, uh, just always wanting to sort of contribute to the public debate and discussion. And, uh, a lot of people were asking me about, well, how have you done plastics? Why have you done plastics? And, you know, what about the other side of the story on palm oil and, you know, et cetera, et cetera. So I did, I was, I didn't obviously want to make it a autobiography because I'm too young. And I didn't want to, want to make it a sort of corporate history of Iceland. Dad, Dad's actually written a brilliant book about 10 years ago called Best Served Cold. And that was the, the kind of rise, fall and rise again of Iceland, uh, which is highly recommended reading. Um, but yeah, I just wanted to, to ha- just take a wider look at um, how business can step up to the climate emergency, the nature emergency, how business can do more for um, society, help reduce inequality, and what government needs to do to uh, engender all of that. And I think it's such a such a timely uh, discussion um, because you know these problems are, are getting worse, and, and change is happening faster and faster. So uh, business is the enabler by which we're, we're going to try and uh, make positive change in the world. Oh, that's amazing. And is there anything in the process of creating the book that you found surprising? Because when I've been speaking to or listening to the views of, say, like Lily Cole, she was saying when she was bringing together her book, Who Cares Wins? Um, she found the process quite, quite interesting and it unearthed a lot. It was like it became her own journey. Has that, has that been similar for yourself? Have there been aspects that have been surprising you as you've been pulling it together? Yeah, definitely. I mean, it is a bit of a moment because you, you're kind of delving into your history and, you know, what you stand for, what your beliefs are. I turned 40 at the same time. So obviously due a midlife crisis now. And I think that that is obviously a, a time to reflect as well. So, yeah, it was absolutely part of that process. The, I mean, the, the most surprising thing is just how damn hard work it is. I mean, it is it, it is it's really, really time consuming, and difficult to, to write a good book. I'll accept the bucket list, but I'm not having midlife crisis, not yet. Or as someone who's nearly 42, no, 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 we're not having that. But um, one thing I was going to say, you know, you really also kind of emerged as a, a public voice, you know, whether it's appearances on Question Time or kind of articles in the press. Do you feel that as business leaders, 
um, we need to speak up more and not kind of stay too far on the sidelines. Yeah, I do. There's, a, you know, um, there's always a danger when business and therefore money gets involved in politics. And obviously, you know, that can turn very bad. Um, but I think fortunately we have enough checks and balances in our political system in this country to avoid the worst of it. But I absolutely think, you know, business needs to come out of the shadows, have more of a face um, because, you know, there's, especially in the UK, there's a really negative kind of connotations around business and business people. I think that's partly because business hasn't done a good enough job of uh, showing a face and um, what benefits it can bring to society. You know, business business should be there to help serve more stakeholders than just its shareholders, and and therefore it should absolutely be helping to advise government. I, I always found it funny. My, my old life was as a lawyer before I went to sustainability, and they used to talk about the corporate veil, and something always felt a little bit kind of dastardly about, about that. And I, you know, with the right checks and balances and with transparency... And I think businesses now do need to be more human. They need to be willing to have more of a of a dialogue. I, I don't think you can you can you can hide away anymore. But obviously, there has to be maybe that confidence to speak out in the right way is still not quite there yet. Yeah, I think so. And it depends what type of business you are as well. Um, if you're a public uh, quoted business, it can be quite difficult. I think a lot of publicly quoted CEOs are very scared about saying the wrong thing or uh, offending people or, or doing something that may affect the, the short-term share price. And therefore, it's a lot easier for us as, um, as a private business to, to say what we think. And that's why you tend to get a lot of privately owned businesses that are more comfortable in this space. But it's not, you know, it, it's not... Um, it's not uniformly agreed upon. In fact, my dad often gives me a hard time about appearing on Question Time, for example, saying that he can't see the benefit to the business, only my ego, which I suppose is fair enough. Um, but, you know, I can't just sit there every week shouting at my TV behind four walls. I want to make a stand and do what's right for my family and the world we live in, the business and our customers. And I think it does all help. And everyone needs to be part of that discussion, whether you're the MD um, and a company or I think there's you're a human being in the same way that um, the other panelists um, on Question Time, for the most part, are human beings. Of course, they're all human beings. Um, and the audience are too. And I think maybe thinking about a green recovery, that ability to build dialogues and, okay, social media has its pros and cons, but one thing it certainly has done in recent years is create more opportunities for a dialogue on issues such as, as climate change or, or diversity. Totally. But look what happens when a young, brave footballer like Marcus Rashford stands stands up and speaks out about what's important to him. The poorest kids in the UK don't go hungry during the school holidays anymore. And I think we need more leadership from outside the political sphere to to guide and lead to real change. And, and leadership can come from anywhere. And it's funny that you know, in the for the first few weeks of Marcus's campaign, there were people saying, you know, it's not his place to do that. Of course it was his place. He'd experienced it. He'd seen it. He was already supporting it. Um, I think that's a great example. Um, one thing I was going to say is you haven't always worked in the food retail industry. You, rejoined, well, you joined Iceland in 2012, which feels so long ago from 2020 in terms of mood and years. But you, you worked in the real estate sector um, beforehand. And I was going to ask, how, how did you find that in relation to 
sustainability and also you, you still have a hand in it in terms of you're a, a chair of um, Bywater Properties and um, how are you finding when you look at it your angle now the built environment and the sustainability and environment space yeah well when I graduated from uni I didn't know what I wanted to do but I was absolutely adamant I didn't want to try and emulate dad and I had to sort of plow my own furrow um, and I was particularly interested in the store locations and how 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 those stores were found and the process of, of leasing. And, and, you know, I did a bit of work experience with some of Ison's kind of letting um, agents and, and that led me to investment agency. So I got on the graduate scheme of Jones Lang LaSalle and I was in their West End office doing ultimately West End investment. Uh, and I absolutely loved it. I mean, I, I loved the, um, uh, the personal kind of nature of property and, um, the, the whole process of it. So, yeah, built up by Water Properties. First, we set up a fund in Poland where I lived and worked full time for three years. Um, and we sold that fund and management platform. And then we built another um, fund back in the UK. And today, you know, Bywater has quite a few different clients, different funds, but it's a business that's doing really well. It's got some quite significant uh, developments underway, including the world's, uh, sorry, the UK's biggest um, timber framed office building, which would be 60,000 square foot in Lambeth, just over the water from the Houses of Parliament. And uh, it will be a carbon neutral scheme. But they've done defurbs of old, an old department store in Soccer Hall Street in Glasgow to create kind of co-working space. Uh, they've converted uh, old office blocks in Reading to uh, 90 student um, halls of residence. They've done all sorts of exciting stuff. And I think as I've progressed with my sustainability journey, Bywater has as well. And, uh, you know, there is a growing realization now that the built environment is 40% of all greenhouse gas emissions. It is such a significant contributor. And yet, l- looking more from the outside in nowadays, uh, it's, it's way behind where it should be. There's a lot of chat about specific things like carbon in use, you know, which is important. Retrofitting homes, better energy efficiency, insulation, solar power, that sort of thing. Very important. But actually, we need to tackle looking at steel and concrete now, carbon in build, which is an enormous factor when you look at the whole life cycle of a building. And that's where new technologies, you're using old technologies like cross-laminated timber are so exciting. And I think there's a real opportunity now in the property sector sector to embrace that, just like how countries such as Norway and France are. And Bywater are very much looking to lead the charge in terms of becoming the most sustainable developer out there, the most flexible, doing really interesting schemes uh, to sort of create the, the modern workspace that people need. So I'm I'm very very proud of Bywater, if you like. I, I kind of look at it on a like an old granddad now who's proud of his grandkids. <laughs> I sort of I've 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 moved on and sell frozen bees for a living, but it, it's great to see them just grow from strength to strength. And it's run by Paddy and Theo, who are doing a, a brilliant job of it. No, I, I mean I, I really like it. if you think about your own influence there. You're tackling everything from agriculture and retail and, and, and the plastic side of Iceland, but you've still got a hand in with Bywaters watching the built environment, which has such a sizable carbon footprint too, um, drive change. I mean, I, I've seen a real change of pace within the built environment since the Paris Agreement. And in fact, it's been getting far, like the pace of change has been getting faster and faster. And then that point on embodied carbon, one of my 
frustrations around the the ten point plan that was released the other week in the UK was that it you know it wasn't anything <laughs> around the built environment and looking at the carbon story behind the materials and maybe it's too soon and that can come in through other aspects and getting the in use stuff in 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 place right first and the residential stuff is has a priority but I I, I do think there needs to be those disruptors such as Bywaters who are creating those buildings that are looking to tackle that whole life carbon aspect and help us as a country tackle um the goals that we need to get to to get to to two limiting global warming to two degrees if not 1.5 would be ideal um so i think it's cool must be cool to see both sides of that it is cool and the opportunities are now seemingly endless to to improve things and do things better so we talked about carbon but actually just creating more circularity with buildings you know let's look at how we can repurpose old buildings first and stop thinking about building buildings that last less than a lifetime and when that timber framed office building in lambeth reaches the end of its life it can be dismantled and repurposed just how uh, timber frame buildings in japan used to be a thousand years ago and the the things that go in it from interface carpet tiles, for example, or recycled office furniture, super important. And um, I heard a stat that used furniture from office clearances accounts for 300 tons a day in the UK going to landfill. So we need to look at more sustainable furniture and, and remanufacturing of used furniture, because that is a big element of when you look at a full life cycle analysis of buildings. And I think that's, that's the, the lens that is now widening on property. Yeah. And I think, um, for core and shell, there's some great work being done by the architects journal have a retro first campaign at the moment and then business in the community and going back to your, your graduate employers, um, JLL are doing some great work as part of a circle economy task force um really getting people to think that there isn't really in a way they need to think about anything whether it's furniture or flooring or ceiling tiles finding ways of things to have a another life or to be repurposed um and just really think about giving materials a proper life or a second life so it's an, ex- it's an exciting space to be in 100 I'm, I'm very different to the pace of retail which is all about high volume millions of transactions a day Sometimes in property, we can be working on the development for half a decade or more, and uh, they, they, they just present different ways of working and different challenges. Absolutely. I mean, I, there must be a benefit to having seen two quite different worlds um, and kind of diversifying, diversifying, diversifying experience. Which brings me on to another point, which is one thing I've noticed about your career in the last couple of years is how much you give of your time to give back you know we met because we're both trustees of service against sewage but you're also trustee at greenpeace and flora and fauna and you're a world economic forum young global leader Um, firstly where do you find the time and then secondly you know what's your thoughts around that need to give back yeah well actually just to clarify i'm not a trustee at greenpeace i'm on their ocean advisory board um but yeah because sort of close have been closely involved with the organization and Service Against Surge, which, as you know, is, is a fabulous organization and doing amazing things. I think I'm interested, first of all, in, in brilliant organizations that are changing the world, and I want to be a part of that. Uh, I'm not very good at finding the time. I'm just not very good at saying no to things. So, <laughs> um, I, you know, you try and 
you try and compartmentalize things yeah. and, and multitask, but it is obviously, obviously difficult and you can only do so much. But you, you're right, I'm now involved in a, a very wide range of things. Uh, but I think it can bring benefits to the other things you do and as long as they're complementary and there's a valid, strong reason and value add for, for doing all of it. Um, it's it's important, but that's the thing is you know I'm I'm so lucky in life. It's uh, Iceland's a family business, and you know I'm brought up in a fabulous way, fabulous environment, and uh, it's very important. I think that uh, I do kind of take all of the advantages that I've been given in life, and that that doesn't just mean being involved in business to make money. It obviously means using the business as a platform. Uh, to to try and do well and help change things, but also using my voice as a platform and, and my experience as a platform to help other organisations like uh, Surfers Against Sewage and Fauna and Flora. I think it's a great way for people throughout different businesses at, at different levels to think about giving back to, to charities and organisations outside of their day-to-day. And when I'm thinking about a green recovery, one of the things I find myself doing is encouraging people to look at, you know, what's something they're passionate about that they would like to use their skills to help. And whether it's through a trusteeship or being a governor of a school or even helping like a local sports club and, you know, just thinking about the, the recent lockdown, local sports clubs are going to need more help than they've ever had before at a grassroots level after this year. Is that something that you find yourself having discussions with or that you'd have a message to to people who might be listening to this this podcast to think about yeah uh i think you know just get involved and um it's about it's about players not commentators and it's easy to point fingers especially when there's such a wide range of of issues that society and the environment faces but actually uh, like i said leadership can come from anywhere but most importantly you know it's just important to to be a player not a commentator and and get on and actually do something do anything and fear of failure and certainly fear of not getting everything 100% perfect should not stop anyone from at least trying and uh, they shouldn't shouldn't let the doubters stop them from trying either I like that. I think um, the world has no shortage of commentators and that's no offence to John Motson or to Clive Tildesley or anyone, but in terms of with social media, that's a really powerful, powerful point to, to kind of bring us to a close on. Um, if people want to find out more about yourself and your work, um, so in addition to the Green Grocer, which I'll be checking to see when I can pre-order, um, what's the best way to keep tracks on what you're doing and what Iceland are doing? Uh, well, you can check out my Twitter handle, uh, which is um, Iceland Richard, which uh, I'm, I'm pretty active on. Um, we also have a, uh, a Doing It Right website as well, which is our kind of sustainability journey at Iceland, where we try and be as transparent and open and honest about all of our successes and failures as, as we can be. Brilliant. Thank you for your time. And I'm, 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 I'm sad that we have to bring it to a close because we could have talked for ages. Um Maybe there's be a sequel. Anyway, but thank you so much. And thank you for the work you're doing and the business leadership you're showing, because it really does inspire um, a huge number of people in all, all parts of society. And I, I love the fact that the work that Iceland are doing is democratizing issues around sustainability, because as you say, it's something that affects everyone and we need everyone to feel empowered to make a difference. Yeah, we've got to mainstream it. So that's what I'm determined to do. But um, yeah, it's been it's been great uh, catching up with you, John. And I'll see you at the next trustee meeting. Absolute pleasure. Listening to Richard, I'm reminded of the power of business to do good and how important that call to action has been throughout 2020. 
With Iceland and Bywater Properties, Richard and his teams are doing amazing things and disrupting markets. To me, that's fueled by his strong personal connection to nature and commitment to make a difference. I love how he's willing to lead industries, if not industry itself, in confronting issues such as plastic, palm oil and embodied carbon head on. Thank you for joining us on Designing with Climate in Mind. If you're enjoying the series, please subscribe, share with others or leave a rating. Until next time, goodbye and thanks for listening.